Nikita Oliver is a lawyer, educator, artist, activist, boxer, former mayoral candidate, and so much more. We discuss her journey growing up in Indiana, fighting for equity and justice, and what's next. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. I am Nikita Oliver. Hey. (laughs) I know that you grew up in Indiana. Yes. Were you born in Indiana? I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. What was it like growing up in Indiana? That's a good question. You know, Indiana is just, I have to think of it in comparison to being in Seattle. It's just such a different place um, in terms of, I mean, obviously it's a different geographic geographical location, but things move differently. Like, I feel like they move slower. People <laughs> move at a different pace. It, it ha- There's a lot more black folks in Indianapolis, right. Indiana. It's kind of a country, urban city. Mm-hmm. Like, all my family has moved into Indianapolis from rural areas at, mm-hmm. at different points. Like, my father's family moved there during the Great Migration to work in, you know, rubber factories and move there, you know, over time to, mm-hmm. to do different things. Um, my mother's family were all farmers. They moved into the city. My, my aunties and my, my mom and then later my grandmother. So mm-hmm. that side of the family, both sides of the family were at one point farmers, my father's side sharecroppers. But uh, over time, you know, they all decided they want to be city dwellers. Yeah. And Indianapolis is kind of a city where like people have, while trying to become city dwellers, have kind of like stayed country. Right. So <laughs> I grew up next to a cornfield, even though I lived in a city mm-hmm. and we oh. lived in like, an apartment complex, you didn't have to walk that far to find like a city cornfield. So right. it's also a really religious place. Seattle's not religious in the same way that yeah. Indianapolis is. So literally a church on every block. Everybody goes to church, even if you don't really consider yourself a believer, it's just right. kind of what people do. So yeah, it's very different than Seattle. Also, people don't talk hella academic-y, if that uh, makes sense. Like mm. you're not having like these conversations with words nobody understands. Like people are having just very real life, yeah. pragmatic conversations about about real deep stuff. But interesting, because um, that's what I'm saying. We do, we we don't talk about certain things. Here. Right. Yeah. How long were you in Indianapolis? Yeah, I lived in India until I was 18, and then I okay. moved to Seattle for college. Okay. So how long have you been in Seattle? I've been in Seattle since 2004. Okay. I moved here to go to Seattle Pacific University. Don't tell anyone. I still got questions. I still I got. <laughs> sorry, we gotta go sorry, back. I jumped, we gotta sorry, go back. No, sorry. no, no. I was, I was good. I'm, I'm glad that you said that there were hella black folks in Indiana because there is this misconception that there aren't black folks in the Midwest, which I don't know where the hell that came from because right. black folks had to go through somewhere to get north after they left the the south, right. and there's hella black folks in the Midwest, uh, and way more than Seattle. Oh, way more than King County, way more than Washington State. Pacific Northwest. What type of child were you in elementary school? You know, sometimes I try to think about growing up, and I don't know if it's like a mental block or something, but like everything pre-18 is like jello, you know? But I would say like 
elementary school, I was fairly easygoing, and then middle school, I turned into like a demon child. What do you mean? <laughs> what happened? Not like an evil child, but yeah. just very high maintenance. Like okay. I remember in sixth grade, my mom had to come up to the school because they had told her <laughs> that my locker was full. Even though I wasn't putting my textbooks in it, and it was full. Like, every paper from all of sixth grade was in my locker. So my mom came to school, helped me clean my locker out, and put, like, what? organizers in it. So, you know, I, I, I have the best mom ever because she just kind of saw that and was like, that's just my child. Right, <laughs> you, know? Right. you know, but I was also a very creative child, always into music and the arts and dancing and singing like okay. part of like our our growing up at church was i was always on the worship team where i played in the church orchestra or you know i was singing solos in church and so yeah i was also a very creative what you play uh i played viola from sixth grade through my first year of college wow. i taught myself to play guitar i play a little piano do you still play Sometimes. Okay. Okay. Were <laughs> not you, publicly. Okay. All right. <laughs> Were you boxing in middle school? I was not. I actually did not think of myself as an athlete until I was probably in my mid twenties. Okay. I I just didn't feel coordinated, it, which is funny because my whole family, other than my mom, are athletes. My 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 stepdad, my brothers and sisters. You know, they all play sports, mm -hmm. and so. Um, I was the weirdo kid who would be like, listen to my audition song or watch my audition dance or hear this new song I learned on the viola. And my family was not having it. They're like, cool. Thanks, Nikita. Um. <laughs> they, they, no joke. They put me in the basement to practice. Oh, that was my parents, too. That was my parents. Too. Close your door, please. <laughs> nah, I wouldn't even close the door. It was go in the go unfinished basement, basement <laughs> and practice your viola, you know. And they would come to my musicals or like or our recitals. What did you, what did your folks do? My mom was a pharmaceutical sales rep, nice. but she went to school when in her late twenties when I was a kid and my sister was a baby. Mm -hmm. So for like a good chunk of my early life, my mom was was working full time while trying to finish college and raising kids. Yeah, holding, raising holding two high maintenance little girls. Okay. My stepfather, who for all intents and purposes has been like the father in the house most of my life, he started a, a cleaning company that first started as just a carpet cleaning company. Mm -hmm. And it's actually one of the things I respect about him. It could be, you know, as we know, it could be hard being a black man in this society and getting a job and being economically sustained. Touching my soul. Right? He, <laughs> he started a, a carpet cleaning company. And over time, um, that grew into an industrial cleaning company. And so... Wow. Oh, wow. Um, Entrepreneurship. Yeah. And he's worked really hard to build that. You know, he started as a janitor. It wasn't like one day he was like, I'm going to clean some stuff. Yeah. He started yeah. out cleaning people's... Cleaning schools, cleaning mm -hmm. carpets. And then was like, why am I doing this for someone else's company? That's I have all the skills and the expertise. I should just start my my own company instead of doing this work for this white man's company. So there it is. Um, he and my mom have worked really hard together over the years. To together, they bought the first house I ever lived in. So nice. up until seventh grade, we lived in apartments. Mm -hmm. They you know they worked together to buy that home. My, my father, my biological father, he works for a factory called the Wonder Bread Factory. Okay. But he had a lot of hard times, and for a good chunk of my life was 
uh, houseless. Mm -hmm. And so that really set him back a lot. So uh, we've just started over the last few years, you know, getting to know each other better. Yeah. But I mean, that's hard when I live 2,000 right. miles away. Are you the oldest? Young? I am the oldest. Oh, responsibility! Uh, it yes. all it all makes sense. It comes. It's coming. It's coming together now. They love to tell stories too. As as much as I was a little bit of a high maintenance teen, I was also like the very responsible one of my siblings, and yeah. I can I can say that because I know it's true. <laughs> Out of how many siblings? I have. There's five of us. Okay, mm but not all lived in that house. Four of us lived in that house together. Uh, so I was the responsible one. Like I'm not the one my my mom ever had to tell to do my homework mm. or come home at a particular time. Don't throw too or much not shade. Do Don't XYZ. throw too much shade. Uh, I mean, even they'll say that. They will say that. I was gonna say they're gonna be in the comments. Nah, like, they listen. Know. <laughs> they Let know it's true. You. They know it's true. But you know, I think the beauty of my siblings are is we've all kind of chosen our, our own paths, and they all look very different. Yeah, we all still love each other, so Absolutely. that's beautiful. As you were growing up, maybe like in high school, did you know what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Uh, not in high school. I did as an elementary schooler oh, wow. say that I wanted to be a singing missionary doctor. Okay. Oh. I wanted to do musicals about the Lord and then operate on people. <laughs> where, did you, where did those thoughts come from? Uh, I mean, I grew up in the church. Yes. So, you know, I, I just figured I would find some way to take... My, cause my grandmother, my grandmother, and my aunties were all nurses. Yeah. So I had it in my head. Mm. I would go into the medical profession, having no idea that anatomy and physiology Oof. is just some hard ass shit. Yeah. So I thought I would just combine all my passions together. Why couldn't I do Why all not? three of those things at once? And then, in high school, you know, I just really wasn't sure. I was awkward in high school. I like ninth grade. I was trying to wear the baggiest jeans and hey. sweatshirt possible. I had ball chains on all around my neck. Okay. Like, I should have been So you in were Seattle. mixing, you were mixing I, things. <laughs> I thought, a little bit of grunge. Yeah, I should have been in TLC. Seattle. I thought, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> it's the mixed girl syndrome. You know, when you're mixed, you're like, oh. you you listen to a lot of different I music. I want to kick it with everybody. <laughs> yeah, like, so you just start putting it together. I even was twisting my hair into like, fake locks yeah. because it you know I could make it do that every morning yeah. and so yeah I was all kinds of confused I had uh, ball chains around the neck bracelets <laughs> up my arm but the baggy clothes going <laughs> with my all white K-Swiss or hey. sometimes the all white Adidas shell toes hey. and then that was me freshman year of high school but just super confused about everything I was just like why am I here at this school with these 3,500 other people every day? <laughs> wow, some big school. Um, I so know. I don't really remember learning anything in high school. Yeah. But I was, <laughs> I, right? Like, that's sad. But I was very engaged in the performing arts. So, mm. did you always know that you would go to college? Was there an option? Was it. No, I didn't necessarily think I would go to college. In fact, my senior year when I got called into the office to do like my little meeting with the counselor mm -hmm. he like really gave me five minutes that's it and was like and I was a top 25 senior so wow. like of the 850 freshmen that started in my class 450 of us graduated I was in the top 25 of that group mm. um, so wait, wait. you said of the 800 people in your class 400 in 25 graduated it was like 450 it was like wow. the dropout rate and who just didn't finish was yeah. 
It was super high. Was it also a high mobile area? Did a lot of people move around? Not really. Oh. It just, yeah, people just didn't finish. Wow. Wow. Okay. So. Top 25. Top 25. Yeah. And the counselor was like, here's your five minutes. Mm. And then kind of moved me on. And what really got me to apply for college was, again, back to church. The people I went to church with, they were all applying to college. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, um, if all y'all are applying to college, I should probably... I'm top 25. I should probably be <laughs> thinking about something. So I started applying. And my mom didn't go to college right after high school. And mm-hmm. so there was a certain amount of just us not having the knowledge as a family Absolutely. of how to apply for college. Like there wasn't the common app. You know, you had to right. do that stuff by hand. Mm-hmm. And so we figured it out. And I ended up getting to SPU and deciding to moved to Seattle. I'd come to Seattle the summer before for, <laughs> this is so nerdy, for a national Bible quiz meet. Okay. Where we competed against church teams from across the nation to wow. see who knew first and second Corinthians And they best. sent y'all to Seattle? That's where nationals was at SPU. Wow. Oh, okay. so that's how, okay. is that why you applied there? Because you were familiar? Well, they why were- I applied was because it was far away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It wasn't in a cornfield. My mom had said I had to go to a Christian school because she was afraid I would wild out. Okay. I also applied to SPU because I love the rain. When we came Mm. here, it was, it rained almost every day and I would just take walks in the rain. And I'm moody. I I mean, I already told y'all the Pisces moon. (laughs) With the Um, chain in the back of your head. (laughs) Yeah, I'm moody. my city. I'm just moody. And I was like, this is the place for me. Right. I don't know why I didn't put it together that you would be 18 at SPU. What was that like? SPU was challenging. So my first week there actually was great. They have this program called Early Connections. Mm. They basically bring all the brown kids and like the missionary kids Mm. together. Missionary kids, like people who apply to the school but their families live in other countries, Mm. doing some colonial stuff, Mm. you know, proselytizing other nations. (laughs) As you can see, I don't go to church anymore. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, Love you, mom. Um, <laughs> but uh, the first week was great. Early connections. I met a lot of people who looked like me, who thought like me, who listened to music that I listened to. Yeah. Some who came from the same kinds of families they came to. So they also would have other young people who were either first generation college students or maybe came from families that weren't, who didn't go on the traditional timeline for college. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that part was fun. We went on Ride the Ducks before it was scary. Yeah. Er, than it is now. Yeah. And so the real orientation starts where every student is there. And you're like, what happened and to the kids of color? And it was a white flood. Mm. And not Blizzard. just like any kind of white. It was wealthy white. And, ah, yeah. Um, SPU is expensive. Yeah. yeah it's expensive. Yeah. It's a private, Christian, mm-hmm. evangelical, liberal arts school. I had scholarships, y'all, and took out some loans. You know, and I grew up in Indiana, and I wasn't necessarily around a lot of wealthy white folks. I was Mm. around uh, white people, but they were, like, middle-income white folks or even, like, low-income country white folks, you know? So Mm -hmm. it was, it got really uncomfortable. And I was fortunate, though, that uh, I took a class called South African Literature Post-Apartheid, and the professor was incredible. And that class really kept me engaged in what college could be about. Because we read international literature, or we read specifically from South Africa, that 
I had never had the opportunity to read mm -hmm. and my brain kind of exploded in that class mm. learning about uh, apartheid learning about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, learning about uh, the different writing that had come out post-apartheid to tell the story of South Africa, for black South Africans to really reclaim their culture and identity in the land. And that really started me on a path of um, first thinking about reconciliation from a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. But when I started to really dig into Christian history, because you had to take history classes and Bible classes mm. at SPU, right. I started to realize how hypocritical the church was mm. and really started to piece together the colonialism and uh, the role Christians had played in enslavement and in genocide on Turtle Island on this landmass. And so SPU then also became a space where I radicalized. So as hard as this it was to be in, you know, culturally, financially, because there was a point where I thought I was gonna have to leave the school and go back to Indiana and go yeah. to Butler University. As hard as all those things were, it was the first place I learned how to organize and um, to really start thinking critically and analytically about the side society that we were in. Because prior to that, you know, my experience had been very black and white. Right, um, right, right, right. Having a black parent and a white parent and seeing how that unfolds in Indiana because it's, it's very overtly racist there. Sure. But then here I am studying sociology and Christian history and uh, really starting to realize, like, yo, this stuff might be more fucked up than I thought. Right. Um, and, and started asking really hard questions. So as hard as SPU was, it was really good for my formation. Would you say at SPU is where you started to develop your social consciousness, or did that become did that come earlier? I would say I was conscious at a level growing up in Indiana. It's hard to have a white family and a black family and not notice the differences in way in the way people are treated. Mm -hmm. So I was cognizant of racial dynamics. I was also cognizant of uh, economic or wealth dynamics because. Mm -hmm. The church that I went to, there were people with a lot more money than what my family had. And so I could see how that, that played out in access and opportunity. I didn't necessarily use those words, but I, I had an understanding of it. So when I got to SPU and I started taking all these classes, but in particular, I took, I went through six majors. My final major was sociology. Okay. And I took uh, Social 101 and uh, I was like, oh my goodness. I've been looking for these words for forever, <laughs> and I finally had a language to talk about things that I had been thinking about for a long time. And so I think what happened at SPU was me gaining additional words to talk about what I could see, what I was observing, what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then post-SPU was when I would say I really started to develop a solid analysis around change what does change look like what does justice look mm -hmm. like what does transformation look like and how does it happen or occur so it's been a process mm -hmm. but i would say even from a young age i was aware of the differences in mm -hmm. how people live and how people are treated right yeah. right right right. i was a sociology major too well same yeah, all, all the social majors oh yeah i went to uh central washington university in ellensburg washington so. i i don't know how you did that it's very interesting. It's very interesting. The years of healing right. after college. <laughs> yes, but it was but it was very similar to what you experienced as well, right? And in, in starting to start taking those, once you start taking those sociology classes and you start to get the language and learning how to organize um, mm -hmm. in Ellensburg, Washington, as a mm -hmm. black man in Ellensburg, Washington, and 
I was like, I'm I'm doing this in four. I don't care what anybody says. I'm not doing five. I'm not doing six. Like this is not. That was me. I was we like, if, if we can here. make it three and a half, right? I'd be we are done. <laughs> we are done here. Shout out to Central. What'd you do after school? I graduated during the last recession, mm-hmm. and Likewise. so yeah, it was like I don't know what I'm gonna do. But I had actually been both fortunate and very challenged that during undergraduate I worked full time. So oh wow. At one point in time, I had like five jobs. I had pieced five jobs together. Mm-hmm. I worked for a babysitting company where I would watch rich people's kids. Okay. I'd be like on call and I had really negative experiences. <laughs> I had to go to a Cheetah Girls concert. Uh, and this girl tried to tell, she tried to tell me, she said, go get me a shirt. I said, with one of the kids we that you were babysitting. Yeah. Oh my Stop God. I was like, we can go get you a shirt. She's like, I'm telling my mom you wouldn't do what I said. Mm-mm. I said, oh no, child. This child don't know me. I'm from the Midwest. This, I, was, I just looked at her and I was like, I'm channeling my baba right now. <laughs> um, I said, do you want a shirt or not? Because if you do, we can walk over there. Okay? Right. Demon child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hella high maintenance. Right. So, you know, I had a period of time where I worked a lot of jobs. I had actually been houseless at one point in time in college. Mm-hmm. So I had really developed some serious survival skills. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated, though, I had finally worked my way up to one full-time job. Mm-hmm. Had health insurance. I owned a car. Um, I okay. had a place I was living. I lived in an apartment on Rainier where two days a week, uh, young people were tutored by people from this church okay. in my living room. So they paid half the rent, and then I paid the other half oh. the rent. And the youth in the neighborhood, you know, they obviously knew me because I, I was doing youth work then. Mm-hmm. And we would do, like, movie Saturdays, yeah. or I would bring food, and, like, the homies would come over and play basketball with them. So I, I basically did then kind of what I do now. I worked full-time for Urban Impact, which is a Christian Community Development Association, and stayed here because there was no way to go back to Indiana and have the same kind of economic opportunity. You know, I had coming right out of college. You know, you can't exchange health insurance and a (laughs) full-time pay job and a car and a really cheap apartment. Like, there's there's just no way to make that up. So I ended up staying in Seattle and then stayed really long. Okay. <laughs> Stay here. Um, but always working with young people. Nice. And then you went to law school. Oh, I didn't then go to law school. Seattle. Mark your calendars for Saturday, August 11th at 6 p.m. No Blueprint will be recording a live podcast centered around coffee at the Northwest Film Forum. Stay tuned and visit our website for more details coming soon. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Okay. So I graduated and I was 22 yeah. and I worked for Urban Impact for a while. Yeah. And this was around the time that my analysis really deepened um, around my experience with the church. Yeah. And ultimately, around 25, I decided it was I was going to step out of the church. The pastor I had been working with at the time, in my opinion, was very homophobic. Mm-hmm. And... The sort of language they were using to talk about the queer community was not only off-putting, but in my opinion, really went against the message of justice that they regularly talked about within the congregation. And it was hard for me to grapple with the idea of a, a Jesus who didn't love everyone. So how can you tell people, come as you are, mm-hmm. and then say, but not you? Right. Mm. And so I grappled with that for a long time. And what really kind of pushed me over the edge was a number of queer youth had started coming to the youth group and had come out. And I was watching 
them go through so many levels of trauma of wanting to be in this community yeah. and yet being rejected mm-hmm. parts of them being rejected which I feel like if you reject a part of a person that kind like that kind of part of a person right. you are rejecting the person Absolutely. and so yeah. I, I could not in good conscience be comfortable with that the sexism in the church really started to get to me mm-hmm. and so I started to dig through those things and ask myself if this was making the world healthier or if it was making the world less healthy. Right. And um, was it making me healthier or was it making me less healthy? And in the end, my conclusion was that it was making me less healthier. And it was making the world less healthy because I was starting to, the kind of ways I was questioning myself were not ways that I thought the kind of loving God I had grown up being taught about would right. want you to question yourself. I worked for Uh, Seattle Urban Academy for a while. I worked at Year Up for a while and I kind of bounced around between different social service jobs. Mm -hmm. I really struggled with the type of social service we were giving people. It felt like I started to develop my critique of the nonprofit industrial complex, realizing Mm -hmm. that nonprofits in a lot of ways subsist on keeping people in poverty or keeping people from having access to justice. And so I started to develop a new philosophy around like, if we're going to do this work, it has to always be with the most impacted people, led by the most impacted people, and it has to be with the idea of a nonprofit working itself out of existence. Right. You want people to become yeah. sustainable. You want people to be right. healthy and whole. You want people to be protected and have access to justice. So eventually, right. your nonprofit shouldn't have to exist. Right, right. right. Um, which means your job's not going to exist, and you're yeah. going to have to do something different. I ultimately went to law school because when I was working at Seattle Urban Academy, I would go to court with young people or I would check in on their court cases. The youth wouldn't wouldn't know what was happening or they wouldn't be able to tell me what was happening. I'd go to court and I'd be confused about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, did this kid get charged or something or not? Like, right. what's going on? And I was complaining about it to a friend and he looked at me. He was like, Nikita, what the fuck are you doing? Literally said it to me like that. He's like, why don't you just go to law school? And I was like, that's stupid. You want me to do what? Like, People like me don't go to law school, mm-hmm. you know, and people like me meant a lot of things to me at that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't feel capable of going to law school, finishing and passing the bar. I didn't feel smart enough. I didn't feel like I could afford it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel like it was a risk I could take. Mm-hmm. So when I applied to UW Law, I told them I want to come to school to learn how the law works. Mm-hmm. And then I want to use the arts to redistribute that knowledge to my community, in particular to young people. That was my yeah. focus. I had, I had literally already told you to blow. I don't want to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I don't want to practice mm-hmm. law. I just want to learn how the law works. And then I want to be able to use my arts and creativity skills to teach young people how to how to know it and, and work against it and tear things wow. down and build things up. That's dope. And they let me in on a full ride. <laughs> wow. <laughs> nice. Listen, yeah. let that breathe. That's wow. real. That's real. It's incredible. Who was a part of your community? at this point like had you had you solidified who your tribe was and who your folks were you know my tribe has shifted over the years Mm -hmm. um in the 15 years that i've lived in seattle and i don't think that that that's because i'm not committed to people i think that's about seasons Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and in different seasons of your life and in people's different seasons of their lives they need different people and you need right. different For sure, people. Yeah. At that time, my tribe was the Seattle arts community, in particular, like the Slam Poetry community. Mm-hmm. I was consistently at Seattle Poetry Slam. I was consistently at Cornerstone, which was a dope once a month hip hop show. And then I would be at Ladies First. So I was very mm-hmm. much in the 
the open mic scene yeah. and that really became my community those were the people I spent my time with that I wrote with that I performed with that in a lot of ways I shared my life with my trauma with my healing with discovered like a new medium for vulnerability and communication but also for transformation and so mm-hmm. that was a really good period of time but then Seattle started gentrifying mm-hmm. right and then you started disappearing yeah. and people started disappearing and then I went to law school and I started disappearing. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a another shift happened in my life. Right, right. Mm-hmm. What was it? So you dealt with the privilege of folks at SPU. What was it like then stepping into law school and the privilege that comes with law students? Yeah, I mean, I actually have to credit my experience at SPU for kind of preparing me for that off top. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never get used to sitting in a contracts class and after class hearing somebody say how their parents helped them buy a house and they're signing the papers right there in front of you and they're going to live in that house and their parents are going to give them time to pay it off and like, or listening to someone talk about how their grandmother loaned them the full amount they needed for law school and, you know, if they pay it back, they pay it back. That's just not something you ever get used to and you've never had access to that kind of wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. But it did open my eyes to how the parts of society that control how things work, mm-hmm. how they think. Mm-hmm. What they think about folks from our communities, what stories have they been fed about that. And so there was a point in time where I had to stop fighting the ignorance in law school and just listen mm-hmm. uh, for the purpose of just trying to understand who is it that is actually running the show and what is it going to take to move that dial? But it didn't make it like no less challenging. There's nothing like going to class on the day, you're gonna talk about affirmative action and just knowing like, I hella don't wanna talk about this with these folks. <laughs> and 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 feeling frustrated, but knowing that if you if you don't say something, no one else is going to because there's no one else in the room. Right. You might be one of two black people in the whole room, you know, mm-hmm. or one of two people of color. It might even not be another black person. And so, you you make choices every day in law school as to whether or not I'm going to engage this conversation from a position of trying to engage people's minds. Mm-hmm. and try to change their minds or is today going to be the day where I just sit back in my seat and hope the professor doesn't call on me right. or is this the day I skip class so yeah it was very challenging if it wasn't for folks like Michelle Storms who, shout out to Michelle Storms right who let me come sit in their office close the door and just rant if it wasn't for friends who would hit me up on a Monday night and say yo like come eat with me mm-hmm. If it wasn't for my arts friends who would be like, are you writing, are you creating, are you performing, mm-hmm. like you need to be doing that. Mm-hmm. But my law school experience was also shaped by the emergence of, or the resurgence of the Black Liberation Movement and Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And my first internship during law school was at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York City. Okay. And that was the summer that George Zimmerman was acquitted for mm-hmm. the murder of Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. I remember being at CCR and luckily working with some attorneys who are just badasses and have great analysis and saying like, yo, the law don't work. Like justice wasn't served in this case. And I can give you a whole list of cases where justice wasn't served. Mm -hmm. Like what the fuck are we really supposed to be doing with this? And that's exactly how I said it. (laughs) Porvi Shah, who is one of the leaders of the movement law lab really like took me on that summer 
and worked with me to try to show me like different creative ways that I could use my legal degree. <laughs> but when I came back to Seattle, there was a lot happening. <laughs> and I remember the night that the non-indictment of the officer and the murder of Michael Brown mm-hmm. came up and, or came down. And remember sitting in the law school, just waiting for it to come, I mean, all day waiting for it to come on from mm-hmm. like noon until 8 p.m. I had my headphones plugged in or my laptop was pulled up, just waiting for the press conference to start. And when it finally started, I was sitting in the law review suite and the law review suite is where all the journals that the school produces, all the students who work in those journals are. And if you're on a journal, that's like kind of like, like you're the shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't on a journal, y'all, but I'm still the shit. <laughs> you're still the shit. Um, we're sitting in there and people kept walking by asking me and a friend of mine named Claire Sullivan, like, what are y'all looking at? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, how do y'all not know this is going <laughs> on? Mm-hmm. Because uh, BLM and the way the murders of black and brown people by police became so visible through social media really shaped my experience in law school and I remember that night we went to the protest and I actively was thinking like why would I go back to school like if revolution's about to happen Uh, the last thing I want to be doing is sitting in a law school trying to learn some law that we're about to tear down right Um, obviously that didn't happen and I did finish law school and pass the bar But for me, it was um, a very challenging and painful time to be in an institution where they teach you that if you just follow the law, if you just go through the procedures, Mm -hmm. if you just do the process, then justice will be served. And what I really learned in law school is the law and justice are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so graduating and taking the bar, yeah, that's actually, that's the biggest thing that stuck with me. Say more about that. Just understanding that it's not true that if you just follow the law, bad things won't happen to you. Right. Um, and yeah. it's not true that if you just go to court and you just submit the right evidence right. that you'll get a just outcome. Mm-hmm. It is not true. Some people are, are not innocent mm-hmm. before proving guilty. They're viewed as guilty and you have to prove your mm-hmm. innocence. And uh, not all cases work out fair. Like one of the things that kills me now in the work that I do is watching prosecutors use coercive tactics to get people to confess or snitch on people. Right. So like, mm. if I think you might know something, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna charge you with the highest level possible if you don't snitch on somebody, or I'll just give you this little misdemeanor here and you won't get no time. Right. Um, and yeah. that to me is if you have no evidence to implicate somebody for anything, what you're doing now is being a bully. Right. right. Um, and I feel like oftentimes our justice system plays out that way. It's punitive, it plays out with more trauma, it's not restorative. Its goal is not to end harm because, in fact, it inflicts the kind of harm that perpetuates harm. I mean, we mm-hmm. live in a society that is constantly doing economic violence to mm-hmm. poor people, mm-hmm. constantly doing racialized violence to black and brown and native people, right. constantly doing sexist violence to women and queer folks. And so it's, for me, we already live in a violent police state. And what prosecution often does is prosecute crimes of poverty or even yeah. in even when there is a, a harm that did truly occur what our court system does is treat it punitively it doesn't treat it with a healing lens to right. figure out why did that harm occur in the first place and right. so right. yeah being a lawyer kind of cuts both ways for me because mm-hmm. i know that it's really only a mitigation role in the current system we live in mm-hmm. that right. my job mm-hmm. is to mm-hmm. mitigate 
the yeah. worst harm that could happen until we build a system that is really about prevention and healing. Right. So I also know that you didn't just get a law degree and pass the bar, but you also got a master's in education. Yeah. Um, I realized in law school that I like education more than I like practicing law. Yeah. I decided to apply for a master's of education during my second year of law school. So I concurrently finished two degrees. I had to do like an extra quarter or two to finish. Yeah. And I had a great advisor in the in the College of Ed, um, Joy Williamson Lott, who did a lot of work looking at black social movements. Shout out to Joy. Yeah, she, mm. she got me through. Mm. She also like gave me the opportunity to start thinking deeply about the intersection of law and education. And again, the College of Education was not necessarily easier to be oh, in than the law school. Because mm. if you think about where do teachers learn to teach? They learn at teachers' colleges. Yeah. UW's College of Ed. And it's not necessarily much different than other teachers' colleges. So mm-hmm. sometimes I would sit in classes and I would... I would struggle. Mm-hmm. But what studying education and law at the same time allowed me to do, especially when I was writing my thesis and I could read what I wanted to and do the kind of research I was interested in, was that it allowed me to really think about things like political education or how do you move whole groups of people in one direction. I mean, the, the whole school system, the general education system in the United States was created in, in some people's eyes to create an educated populace where everybody could vote and everyone could participate in in public service as as an elected official. Mm. From other perspectives, it was made to acculturate people from other cultures and force them into the Mm. white dominant culture. Right, you know. And so it was a useful space for me to think about how uh, law and education can reinforce each other both for positive or negative Mm -hmm. transformation or outcomes and so it was a challenge because one quarter i took like 20 21 credits i was gonna say Um, as if law school was not enough we decided (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah but you know i took the bar passed the bar and then i finished my med and yeah that was that you know i like how you went from i don't know if i can go to law school law school is not for me to I'm also going to do this master's right. of education and, while, and then study for the bar and then go back a bit. Man. That's I mean, admirable. That's I mean, I more than that. I'm one of those people when I start to get into something and I start to realize there are other things that can be done. Yeah. I just want to make the most of it. So so mm-hmm. the beauty of it was because law school was paid for mm-hmm. and I smashed most of my MED into the same time hey. that I was studying, that I was in law school. I actually was able to uh, share credits which meant I paid oh. a third of what a master's of education hey. would cost other people. Wow. Um, so some of it was also just recognizing, like, let me take advantage. Financially, yeah. hey. I can actually take advantage of this. So, Jewel, <laughs> what did you do after? Like, w- did you go back to being an educator? I mean, to be honest, uh, I started working as soon as I finished taking the bar. I worked. I take, similar to how I am now, I would say I'm Mm self-employed. I take uh, contracts for Mm -hmm. legal work, for writing residencies. Um, My biggest work is working with a project called Creative Justice, which is an Mm -hmm. arts-based alternative to incarceration. It's one way to talk about it, but really the way we think about it is we're building the system we want to see, Mm -hmm. a truly just system that acknowledges that especially young black and brown folks and poor folks are coming from generational trauma and they have been forced into decisions hard spaces based on where they live what body they were born into and uh, wanting to create a system 
that is really about healing mm-hmm. and undoing trauma, or at least moving through trauma is really how I should say it, and recognizing that young people need economic sustainability, mm-hmm. they need places to tell their story, and yeah. a true measure of success for us right now is whether or not the system changes. So they do they change the way that they interact with young people caught in the criminal legal system? Is a, is a big part of that work, but we do it through the arts. We get to work with incredible teaching artists. And my first year with Creative Justice was as a mentor artist. Um, oh. Now I'm the case manager. So I've, I've gotten to grow with the program, okay. but yeah, we get to spend a lot of time with incredible young people yeah. making art, talking about health and society and economics and you know making shit. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Entrepreneur. I love it. You know, um, you gotta be self-employed when you have the public opinions I have. <laughs> Facts. Otherwise, people might start trying to fire you. Listen, and I told I told my dad that I was like, Dad, like, I mean, I don't know how long y'all expect. I didn't do all this to go sit in a corporate a office, cubicle? a cubicle, and and hold my tongue. I don't know, Dad. Um, I wouldn't even do wouldn't it. Last I did long. sit in a cubicle. Listen, I don't. I'd be long. starting a rally right. on the twenty second floor <laughs> right. where I worked. What you mean you get paid more than me? Hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. I miss, Wait, I've been I working here longer. Like right. I'm more educated. I know about this. Yeah. yeah. Hold up. Um, yeah, all, all day. I know you went to Standing Rock. I did go to Standing Rock. Sorry. To be continued. This concludes the first part of this two-part interview. If you liked what you heard, be sure to donate so we can keep going. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. No Blueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. No Blueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Maya Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com.